the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. <clears throat> yeah, we're good. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back to Simple Truth Moments. Last uh, Sunday, we got about halfway through this uh, chapter in the book called The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium by Don Enavolson, and this was chapter 21 called Ministering Spirits. Got about halfway through that, and then we're going to segue into chapter 22, which is entitled War in the Heavens, dealing with spiritual warfare. And so where we left off last time, was kind of a generic um, verse describing um, how, how and what angels do, what's their function. And we went to Hebrews chapter 1, uh, looking at verse 14. But I wanted to go back to verse 13. Um, and I think this will be kind of interesting to tie this in later. Uh, The question is asked in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1, but to which of the angels has he ever said, that's a capital H on he, so it's talking about the Father, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, question mark. And then chapter, I'm sorry, verse 14 in chapter 1 of Hebrews uh, asks this question, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. We talked uh, briefly last week about how and uh, when angels would show up, what was the connection between their interaction with human beings And um, that's pretty much what we're going to be studying today. What is the connection between uh, human authority and angelic power? What we concluded uh, last week was basically that 
human beings in the blueprint of God, going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, have a tremendous amount of authority, virtually unlimited. And on the other hand, um, the angels have practically no authority, but they have a tremendous amount of power, spiritual power, power which crosses over from the supernatural realm over to the earthly realm. And as much authority as humans might have, humans don't have hardly any power. And so it's the interaction between authority and power where this concept of what role does the angelic have in this whole layout, this design protocol of what God basically put together. And the reason we're spending some time on this is that it's interesting. It seems like on the hierarchy and how um, things are laid out in God's kingdom, um, obviously the Godhead understands it. Um, the angelic world, both the loyal angelic world and the rebellious angelic world, also seem to understand it. But the key figures in the, in the kingdom of the human species who just happen to have the most authority, it seems like we understand the least of how things work behind the curtain. And so this is an attempt to try to clarify some of the rules of the game, if you will. It's really not a game. It's a deadly contest, a spiritual warfare. And um, we just need to do a better job of seeing what the Scripture tells us of what the relationship, the interaction, uh, interrelationship is between the angelic and the human species as it applies to God's construct, God's blueprint of his kingdom, his heavenly kingdom, and how it is being restored uh, back to earth. So, in the, if you want to ask what a job description is of, of angels, um, with that verse, Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, um, it basically jo- describes a job description of service. Uh, angels are called um, oftentimes on uh, special assignments. They have particular tasks um, to carry out. Oftentimes uh, with Certain angels, like with Gabriel, they are angels of, of, that serve as messengers. They deliver messages. Uh, but with other angels, such as with um, Michael, um, it's more of a warfare, more of a militant, uh, militaristic character uh, with that group of angels. And so there are some hints that we get in the um, Scripture It's not totally laid out, but as you start to put some of these pieces together, we can begin to understand more deeply um, what the nature of the angelic is, what uh, their role is, and uh, last week we described their job description more than anything else, 
um, when we talk about whether they're a cherubim or a seraphim, et cetera, um, <clears throat> they act as guardians that protect the divine throne or presence. We see that especially with the cherubim. And um, when we look at different angel types, for example, Paul in uh, Ephesians 6.12 talks about spiritual forces. Um, this is obviously talking about the fallen angels uh, who are in opposition to the gospel. They're frequently uh, are given as angel types um, using terms such as rulers or authorities that we see in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Or they have thrones or dominions um, that we see in Colossians 1.16. The, um, the author goes on to say that the only angels in the Bible who are actually named are Michael and Gabriel, and only Michael is called an archangel. Um, in Jude 1.9, it's equivalent to the Hebrew chief prince that we see in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 10, verse 13, or Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Daniel uh, chapter 10, verses 13, uh, suggests that there are more than one archangel since Michael is one of the chief princes. That's plural. But the actual number is uh, nowhere stated in the Bible. But uh, rather than categories of angels, um, there are descriptions of what author Michael Heiser calls geographical domain authority. And um, Jude is in sync with that uh, when he writes that angels have their own position of authority and their proper dwelling. But it doesn't tell us much beyond that of what they are alluding to. So the word angel itself is is very much a functional designation. Um, When we look in the Greek, angelos, and from which the English word angel is derived, um, it basically means messenger. This is an appropriate designation, says the author, since the idea of a messenger generally describes most of what they do. Though the messages they deliver are not always messages in the sense of a spoken communication or a written communication, Messenger more loosely covers a variety of functions, including delivery of announcements that we see with Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 30, and again, Luke 10, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, verse 10, um, as to instruction, Matthew 28, 5, Acts 8, 26, um, also Acts 10, 7, and Acts 27, 23, Angels deliver warnings, talking about the communication uh, realm. Uh, we see that in Matthew 1, 20 through 24, and again, Matthew 2, 13. Uh, and explanations of visions or dreams, we see that in Zechariah 1, 9. But angels are also portrayed in the Scripture as giving protection, and we can see that in Psalms 91, 11. Uh, angels are also portrayed, portrayed as giving comfort. We see that in Luke chapter 1, verse 13. They provide strength, and uh, they give sustenance. Uh, the author gives three examples on that. Matthew 4, um, 11, 
Mark 1.13, and again, Luke 22-43. But in many cases, shifting gears here, angels are portrayed as agents of power. And we see that in the story of Peter being released from prison right before his execution. Um, that We see that in um, Acts chapter 5, and I believe it was also um, Acts chapter 12. So what's very interesting is this manifestation of power can be observed when angels struck, for example, the people of Sodom blind when they threatened Lot, back in Genesis 19, verse 10. Um, when an army surrounded Elisha, the prophet, he was protected by a host of angels mounted on horses and chariots of fire who happened to then strike Elisha's enemies blind. We see that in Second Kings 6, verse 17 through 18. Um, and then an angel cut off all of the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the Assyrian army, which were sent against King Hezekiah. And um, that intervention by the angels forced the Assyrian king to withdraw uh, from engaging in battle with King Hezekiah. You can see that in Second Chronicles 32, verse 21. And we talked about the walls of Jericho coming down last week. But the role of angels um, have to be analyzed and looked at from the simple standpoint that we have to recognize that angels, uh, first and foremost, are spirits. Um, They're not subject to the same physical limitations as human beings are. Um, However, they do often take on a physical appearance. They are not made of the same material substance as our people. But angels can affect the material world, but they themselves are spiritual. Note, for example, we talked about this, I believe, um, when the angel who appeared to Gideon received a sacrifice of meat of, of unleavened bread. Well, the angel showed up with the appearance of a physical being, and he actually touched the sacrifice with a staff that he held in his hand. And what happened? Instantly, fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the bread and meat. And then the angel disappeared. He simply vanished. And we can see that in Judges six twenty-one. But uh, the reference in um, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, refers to all angels, not just certain types, uh, regardless of what categories might be discerned or what kind of hierarchy angels function under in, in Hebrews 1.14, it applies to all of them. So the rules by which the angels function do apply universally. And uh, as ministering spirits, they are often sent out on assignment, to uh, serve or render service, um, and they are to perform a service as a servant. And then lastly, the service, as we look to the original reference in Hebrews chapter 1, 14, for whom is this service 
directed and designed for. It's for those who are to inherit salvation. In other words, they're for us. So taken as a whole, um, we have a profile. It's concise, but nevertheless, all angels are created specifically to be servant spirits for the benefit of human beings. And if you look at the authority structure in the kingdom of God, it does make sense. Uh, Father God, of course, is king. Human beings um, below Father God are acting as the Father's co-regents or co-governors, if you will, reflecting his image. Um, Those same humans have authority to rule where? On the earth. We see that in chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. But angels acting as servants, they use their inherent power to exercise power on behalf of the human beings who have the authority. So, um, one of the things that, uh, or areas that the author goes into is the perplexity when King David wrote Psalms 8, verse 5. He says, You have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings or angels. And I don't want to get into that too much, but the that comes from the translation of Elohim. Elohim can be both a plural uh, for use of the plurality of gods, or it can be used as a singular. I don't want to get into that too much. Um, you can get into that in the into the book, but I want, what I want to say is the question or the issue is whether the delineation of authority uh, is actually correct. If it's correct that man has authority and angels have the power with very little authority, then how can man be considered to be lower than the angels as pointed out in Psalm uh, 8.5. Well, the author goes on to say um, the word uh, lower in this context comes from a Hebrew word called chaser, C-H-A-S-E-R, and it means lower, but it does not mean lower in a sense of hierarchy. Rather, it refers to the word lower, to lack or need or to be inferior or diminished or to suffer want or deprivation. Uh, The author goes on to say that word, chaser, occurs about 20 other times in the Old Testament and always has the same meaning. And um, so in other words, man is inferior to the angels, but the substance of this inferiority is stated in 2 Peter 2.11. Angels, though greater in might and power. And the conclusion is angels are greater in power, but not in authority. And so the author points out this distinction between who has the authority And who has the power is the entire point of studying Psalms 8 and the first two chapters of Hebrews. 
Psalm 8 begins with this question. What is man that you are mindful of him? And obviously this is David praying to find out, you know, what, was, what did God have in mind? And what astounds David, the author of Psalm 8, is not that, that man is lower in a hierarchical, in other words, in form of a hierarchy lower than the angels, but rather what astounds David is the fact that man has been given dominion over creation that we saw in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. This creation includes the angels in spite of his relative weakness or inferiority or limitation when looking at the power of humans contrasted with the power of angels. And factually, man is inferior, both in might and in power, as Second Peter 2.11 tells us. But nevertheless, God has crowned man with glory and honor. That's what we see uh, in verse 5. And in a world that's focused and hyper-focused on and pursues power, the idea that the more powerful, being the angels in this case, should, should be subjected to the weaker, which would be the human in this case, with lesser power, was a remarkable thought to David. Um, Hebrews... Uh, the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 in exactly the same uh, frame of reference where it says in Hebrews 2, verse 7, man is made for a little while lower than the angels. And um, as we go on in Hebrews 2, 5, uh, it, it says, in spite of this inferiority, it was, it was not angels that God subjected the world to come to. These passages in Hebrews does not detract from the authority of human beings, but rather it confirms the authority of human beings. So in spite of all appearances, angels are servant spirits to man, even though angels possess more power, but again, man possesses more authority. And as we see in Luke 10, verse 19, what matters more in God's kingdom is authority over power. In other words, authority trumps power. Man has more authority. Angels have more power. But nevertheless, the authority of man trumps the power of angels. So a discussion of human authority over um, Angels must be accompanied, finally, by a warning uh, that the author points out. And that warning has to do with mankind is naturally drawn in his fallen state to power, and it tends to go in one of two directions. Um, oftentimes, um, when angels do appear, even people who fear God, um, like Gideon or the apostle John, in the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelations, they, when they see angels, often hit the ground face down, and they start to worship the angels. And the angels 
uh, it, we see this in Revelation 22.9, uh, say, don't you worship me. In fact, it says this, you must not do that, referring to Revelation 22.9. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the word of this book. Worship God. And the author points out it was never intended that angels were to be revered or worshipped. But at the other end of the spectrum is the human desire to control and exercise power for their own personal ends rather than in response to carry out the will of God. And he points out that this was contrasted earlier when we studied how a magician operates contrasted with an obedient servant of God, how they operate, and how the two uh, engage both the fallen angelic world and the loyal angelic world. And this is the big caveat, if you will. This is a red flag that the author points out. Uh, Unfortunately, according to the author, the mentality that underlies witchcraft or sorcery has often been adapted, get this, to the setting of churches. One form is the belief that a constant repetition of a Bible promise can force God somehow through repetition to do what the promise says. But such an approach bypasses the part of prayer that we have, the essential part of prayer that involves actually listening to God in the particular situation, in the particular circumstance, as to what he wants to do and what is... (laughs) What is his will in a particular um, challenge, in a particular scenario? And sometimes we're quick to pull the trigger, and we don't want to wait to determine what the Father's will is. And as such, if we insist on what we want, we end up using the Lord's name in vain, in essence. But with regard to angels, this... um, pursuit of power and for the sake of just having power, with regard to angels, it leads to the practice of commanding angels directly. And on the surface, this may seem to have some validity. Human beings have authority over angels. We've studied that. And if prayer is, in essence, commands given that are carried out by angels, then why can't we command angels? We're going to take a look at this on the other side of the break. Does the Bible allow us to command angels, or is it prohibited? This is in the warning section of this chapter, and we'll tackle this on the other side of the break. God bless you. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. We're going to answer the question whether Scripture allows humans with the divine authority given to us by the Father in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis 
and being reestablished uh, with the restoration of the kingdom with the announcement by John the Baptist and uh, the carrying of the, the restoration of the kingdom out by Messiah Jesus, uh, giving humans back the authority that was, in essence, handed over voluntarily by Adam and Eve over to Satan, the great deceiver, the great father of lies. And when that happened, in essence, angels were authorized to use whatever residual power they had. They could now operate on earth with impunity because they now had legal permission to do so. When human beings handed over their authority to Satan by agreeing with his suggestions and creeping doubts about the nature and character of Father God. And once they agreed with Satan, they made an agreement, they made a contract, and Satan was empowered. Now, as we see in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, when the Lord Jesus is sending out the 70, he makes it very clear that he's, he's reestablishing, he's giving back the lost authority of mankind by sending them out, whether it's the 12 apostles who are set out in Matthew chapter 10, or whether it's the 70 disciples later in Luke chapter 10 being sent out. The words in Luke are especially um, noteworthy because he says, I am giving you all authority over all of the power of the enemy. He says you can step on scorpions and snakes and nothing of his will by any means hurt you. So in essence, there go the 70 in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, who come back exercising this authority, and they're shocked. They're awestruck, and they're saying, wow, Jesus, Yeshua, which is his Jewish name. They said, we, even the demons are subject to us in your name because that's the key to the authority when they went and preached the kingdom, healed the sick, did the exorcisms of, of demons, and did the miraculous, all in the name of Jesus. That's where the authority lied. And it was reestablished as Jesus delegated that authority to his apostles and to his disciples. So, coming back to this question, well, if man has virtual unlimited authority and very little power, and the angels are sent to be servant spirits with virtual all power but very limited authority, then what's to prevent mankind from directly, directly commanding angels? So I'm going to read this from um, the chapter 21. It's almost the end of the chapter. This is what the author had to say. 
as to this issue. With regard to angels, it leads to the practice of commanding angels directly. In other words, what he's talking about is when humans desire to control and exercise power for personal ends rather than in response to be agents exercising the will of God. And this is dangerous stuff. This is a minefield, and we have to, as believers, be very, very prudent and circumspect, circumspect on how we, how we handle this. So this is what he said uh, to wrap up this chapter. With regard to angels, it can lead to the practice of commanding angels directly. On the surface, this might seem to have some validity. Human beings do have authority over angels, as we've earlier studied, And if prayer is, in essence, commands that are given, that are carried out by the angels, then why not command angels directly? And the the author says such practice is nowhere in Scripture prohibited, but, but neither is it recommended. And as an example, he gives the reference in Matthew 26, verse 53, when Jesus was um, knows, knows that he's going to be arrested, and this is the night of when they spent the night praying in the garden. And Peter uh, had pulled out a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's uh, assistant. But it, the author says, look, even Jesus did not order angels about Jesus appealed to Father God who would direct the angels. Jesus said as much in his rebuke of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the quote is, do you think, this is Jesus talking directly to Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's a quote out of Matthew 26, verse 53. So why is there this caution on the Bible's lack of focus on details concerning angels? And this is the author's conclusion. The reason for this caution, and what, what, what are we talking about? A man, about mankind with his authority directly commanding angels himself. The reason for this caution and the Bible's lack of focus on the details concerning angels is likely the innate tendency of mankind since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 the tendency to pursue power instead of pursuing obedience to the will of the Father. There it is. There's a tendency of fallen man to pursue unbridled power, however it's attained, instead of 
going to the Father and asking what his will is, instead of obedience to the Father's will in a particular situation, in a particular circumstance. And the author points out, look, the distance between commanding angels in prayer and controlling them through sorcery, as we talked about when we just studied uh, how magicians operate in the earlier shows, the distance is razor thin. The intercessor commands through the Holy Spirit, while the magician and the one who prays in the manner of a magician tends to revel in the sense of power. And I would point out that a very good example, if you want to see um, how we're walking in a minefield on this, is to look at Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21 through 24. And I'm going to turn to that here real quick. And uh, ask yourself, when Jesus is talking um, to this group, is this to the unsaved? Or is this warning to, the, uh, to those who are saved? So looking at math, uh, Matthew 7, verse 20, starting at verse 21. Here it is. I want to get this right, so we're going to make sure that we get the quote exactly the way it is. This is out of the New King James. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Isn't that interesting? So we can claim and say, Lord, Lord, all we want. This reminds me of that verse. I think it's in um, John. No, it's in Luke 6. Uh, I believe it's in 44 where it talks about uh, people who call Jesus Lord, Lord. And he calls them out on this. And basically says, it's, it's, it's uh, Luke six forty six, Luke chapter six forty six. Why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? It's the same flavor here, in this Matthew seven twenty one crowd. So going back to Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So what are we talking about? We have a responsibility as holders of great authority to engage in prayer, deep prayer, sincere prayer, meditative prayer, by verifying and ascertaining what is God's will in a particular circumstance, in a particular situation. And we have to do this all the time. Because if we go out presumptuously and just say or assume, oh, of course God is in this, because now look at verse 22 of Matthew 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Well, 
that's, uh, if you're looking from the outside in, you're going to say, wow, those guys are, are operating in prophecy. Uh, that's reserved for the, uh, for the all-star team. That's reserved for the, uh, the heavy hitters here, using baseball phraseology. Have we not prophesied in your name? Look at the next one. Have we not cast out demons in your name? Excuse me. And have we not done many wonders in your name? Now, on paper, and looking, like again, from the outside in, that's an impressive list of the miraculous. But just because it's the miraculous does not signify or does not mean that God's in it. Man has authority to do the miraculous because of his authority, whether he's a believer or follower in Yeshua, Jesus, or not. And see, this is what the author is cautioning about. This is razor thin as to this distinction. If man wants to be an independent contractor, away from the will of the Father, and just assume, well, I think God would want this, and he doesn't pray, he doesn't double-check, he doesn't do any fleeces, he doesn't verify, and he goes out on a limb and says, of course God would want this. He just presumptuously concludes that. Well, that can be taken advantage of because the man might be, in essence, promoting himself in a religious context. Is, can he gain additional status by prophesying in God's name, casting out demons in his name, and doing many wonders in his name? What's the motivation? God always searches the heart. And so you look at uh, verse 23, and Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So is that a message to the saved or the unsaved? Do the unsaved say, Lord, Lord? Do the unsaved say, uh, we prophesied in your name? Do the unsaved uh, claim that they cast out demons in the name of Jesus? Do the unsaved do many wonders in the name of Jesus. And yet this group is shocked, is stunned. As the English would say, they were gobsmacked. They were speechless because they thought, dude, we're the creme de la creme here. And they get the message, Yeshua HaMashiach, that's his Jewish name, Jesus the Messiah, says to them, Behold, I never knew you. Game over. It doesn't matter what they were doing with their authority and exercising power. If the center of everything they did was not the will of the Father, and they spent serious, prolonged time in prayer verifying that God was in this. They're basically operating independently of God. 
And that's why Jesus said, I never knew you. I didn't ask you to do this. My father never asked you to do this. You're out there doing stuff for us, supposedly. And and so this Matthew 7.21 is a very, very um, sober warning to those. As we enter into this, everyone's talking about a third great awakening, etc. And I would just like to say that I'm noticing trends that concern me. Um, I see brothers and sisters in the Lord starting to command angels. And I'm going, hold on, guys. Hold on. Even Jesus deferred to the Father and said, hey, I could ask the Father to send 12 legions of angels. That's what he told the Apostle Peter. And we need to imitate and follow the example of Jesus. And the author says uh, he thinks that we're not being released yet to directly command angels because we have to prove ourselves that we're trustworthy with this amount of authority. And they're not, we're not going to go off half-cocked like Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. This is a very serious testing ground to see who is qualified to participate in the restoration of the kingdom of God back on earth. So I agree with the author that this is um, a caution, and I think it's a caution on purpose. Now, it's interesting if you say, well, aren't we going to eventually judge angels? Well, yeah, there's a, there's a verse that uh, refers to that. In, uh, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 6, let me see, or maybe 1 Corinthians 3, hold on. Let me see here. Um, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, yeah, it's um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, Paul is asking this question as if the Corinthians church should know this, know these answers. Um In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world would be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Um, They were having some issues about taking um, their legal disputes to unrighteous um, people and not before the saints. That's why Paul was doing this. But check the next verse, verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 6. It says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? Okay, that's going to be one of our future roles of the reestablishment of the kingdom. And again, that's something that will eventually occur. That is something that eventually will happen. But that's not going to happen to just anyone um, who is going to claim to be a Matthew 721 crowd member because they did not end up in a good place. They were separated from God. And when you're separated from God, you do not have eternal life. When, when the 
Son of Man and the Son of God looks at you and says, I never knew you. Well, eternal life is knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So what he's saying is you have no eternal life in you because you were operating separately, detached from me, independent from me, and you took this authority that man has always kept, uh, unfortunately gave away to Satan and didn't know how to handle the return of that heavenly authority in the context of using it strictly to obey the Father's will in every matter, in every situation. So let's skip on over to the next chapter, War in the Heavens. Now this is a good segue to the chapter that we just finished. And um, it basically talks about how uh, does this hierarchy of the angelic actually operate when it comes to conducting war in the heavens. And um, one of the things that the author says is that it's a little more complex when we look at all the um, the evidence that's in the scripture. It's not quite as simplistic as as we think. Um, for example, uh, he talks about Psalm 82. In Psalm 82, he describes it as the biblical account, which has a divine counsel. And that divine counsel are called the sons of God. Well, okay, so in Romans, it talks about the world groaning until the manifestation of the sons of God. Well, is it talking about a divine counsel, or is it talking about us as children of, of God. Um, now, in that divine council arena in Psalms 82, there are lesser angels in attendance, and we can see in 1 Kings twenty two nineteen, 19, um, there are members of the council acting in rebellion with a view to becoming a chief god, as we see in Isaiah 14, which describes very well um, that the rebellion against God began in the heavenlies. It began there. It was not an earthly uh, f- operation and, or function. And um, so the, the really interesting account in this was that the rebellion against God in Isaiah 14, especially with the five I wills that Satan announces, one of which he says, I want to raise my throne above that, the Most High God. Um, that rebellion is unsuccessful uh, in the heavenlies. But, um, and that does bring me up to an interesting um, side trail here. Um, ask yourself, are angels ever given thrones or are thrones reserved only for mankind? and for the Godhead. And other entities that we're going to learn about here. Um, let's go on. He talks about any other heavenly entity that's referred to in Psalm 82, or for example, the 24 elders that we see um, uh, in the book of Revelation, who throw their crowns at the at the foot of of the of the Lamb, um, all of these other entities may be quote Elohim, uh, 
which is the plural of, um, of gods, uh, little g, um, they are always distinguished from creator God, father God, by the fact that they were all created. God himself, Father God himself, is the only eternal immortal being who is above all. Um, the second tier of, of these sons of God uh, is composed of a divine council. It's referred to in Scripture by various names. In Psalm 82.1, it's called um, the divine council and the sons of God. But the exact number of Elohim, or small g, God, small g, who comprise the council is not given in the Bible. Uh, the author says many experts who study this have suggested the number 70. Deuteronomy 32.8 says that when God gave the nations their inheritance, God himself fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Uh, again, experts have weighed in on this. Um, this is not universally accepted, but uh, it was generally believed that there were originally 70 nations based on the list given in Genesis chapter 10. And um, the lowest tier of this hierarchy is the Malachim, or the messengers. It's the same. Uh, these angels perform a variety of functions appropriate for spirits uh, who are created to be servants. And we just we talked about that in the last chapter. The implication of Deuteronomy 32.8 is at some point God assigned a nation to each of the members of the divine council. And, um, and it's interesting that Israel was the one nation that he didn't assign out. He reserved that for himself. And he gave the care of his chosen people to an archangel who would do the bidding of the Father. And this was Michael. And we see this referenced in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. The great prince who has charge of your people. So again, this gets a little more involved, a little more intricate, and a little more complicated than what we have um, really studied. But the author here points out that this might be an accurate interpretation suggested by the context of, of Psalm 82. There God takes his place in the midst of the council members, and the text in Psalm 82, he's rebuking them. God, is, God the Father is rebuking them for mismanagement of their responsibilities in running these, these nations. He asks in verse 2, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then the Father promises retribution, demonstrating that even though they might be powerful spiritual beings, they are not immortal in nature like Father God is. And this is a quote. I said, you are gods, that's small g, sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any other prince. That's in verses 6 and 7. Father then gives a hint of the eventual outcome, declaring that he would take back what they have mishandled. In verse 8, it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So this brings us over to what we want to tackle next. Probably we're going to have to do this next week. But what about the war in the heavens? And how does that impact what goes on with us down here on earth? We with the authority and with the fallen angels and the loyal angels who are, have the power. We're going to study that next week. 
in this chapter of War in the Heavens from this book called The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium. In the meantime, may you have many, many simple truth moments this week with Father God, Yeshua Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. See you next week. God bless. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.